Thank you. Good morning. <clears throat> hey, before we begin, I uh, wanted to let you know we've adopted, we have adopted Golden Oak, the grade school just down the street from us. Uh, they belong to us and we belong to them. We run a Bible club, an after school Bible club, and we're launching it Tuesday, February 1st. We're going to be able to run the Bible club for a first and second grade. Last year, we were able to run it for more grades. We had over 100 kids, over 120 kids. I double-checked with Kathleen this morning in uh, our after-school Bible club. That's 120 every week. We could run it for some more if we had someone who could give 50 minutes on Tuesday afternoons between 2.10 and 3 p.m. If you could give 50 minutes between 2.10 and 3 p.m. on Tuesdays after school for a period of a few weeks, we could add the third grade and maybe the fourth grade. Last time I asked, we had 18 people. We need at least five to eight to add to an entire another grade. So would you be praying about that? Would you consider that? If you'd like to do that, make a difference in this world. Make a difference in some child's life. Because it will. With 50 minutes of your time, then get in touch with Kathleen for any details that you need. Get in touch with Eileen Johnson. Eileen's going to be heading that up. We'd love to have you involved, and we'd love to be seeing 120, 130, 140 kids coming out to Golden Oak. You can mark it on your card and write your address, Mark G, on the communication card. You have to give it to me or to someone on staff so they can, and they'll call you and give you all the information they need. Or, as I said, get in touch with uh, Kathleen and uh, or Eileen. Okay, let's take our Bibles. Turn to Genesis. It's very important for you to bring your Bible. I'm going to just I'm finding it really tough if you're not looking at your Bible with me. I, I want you to understand something about me because I'm I don't see myself as an ideal speaker. The fact of the matter is, is I want to show you in the Word. I always want there to be a connection in the Word to what I'm saying. Because to tell you the truth, uh, if I were you, I wouldn't want to listen to me if I wasn't showing you out of the Word. Because there's no authority in just what I have to say. This is, this is where it's at. And if you don't bring your Bible, and I'm going to go to the Word. I'm going to be in it in detail. Last, at the last service, I really felt like I lost a lot of people. And I even apologized at the end of the service. Uh, but I'm going to be looking at some of the verses. I want you to look at the verb, the, the words with me, okay? Because this is foundational. And what I'm talking about is important because it will inform your worldview from a biblical standpoint. There's no point talking about faith if there's no content to that faith. And there's no perspective on the God who reveals Himself. Okay, so let's look. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verse 26 through probably chapter 2, verse 9. But I want to begin reading at chapter 2 because I've already spent too much time. I'm on a mission this morning. So we've got to get right down to it. 
Verse 1 of chapter 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. And so on the seventh, He rested from all His work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. Verse 4. By the way, I'm reading out of the New International Version. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Exodus chapter 20, which we all know about because it's in Exodus 20 that God reveals His commands, His, uh, His, His code of ten commands for His people. And it's in the midst of that, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, that He points to Genesis and the six days of creation. And the work, he says specifically, the work that he had completed in six days. And then, the work when it was completed, inaugurated a seventh, which is what he's instructing his people about, a day of rest. And here, we're given, in the beginning of chapter 2, the understanding of the seventh day. The day of rest. God established a pattern. We see that, you see, from Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. When he points back, obviously there's a pattern established. And so his work completed, he rested. And we are to rest as well. We're to rest one day in seven And this day of rest is called holy. And we are to keep it holy. What we see God doing here is separating time into regular time and sacred time. Into ordinary time and holy time. We're not to work endlessly. And I have to admit, I need to take that to heart. Sometimes... It just seems like there's no end to what needs to be done. But we are to rest. 
One in seven days. God wants us to enjoy our labor. But the pattern is that His labor ceased and there was a day of rest. And on that one day, He wants us not only to enjoy our labor, and don't we know that it is when we rest, when we have labored. Now, if we rest seven days out of seven, there's not much to enjoy. But when we have worked hard, I'll tell you, uh, I, I don't know, I, I'm just, I'm energized. And we are to enjoy that labor. But we're in to enjoy His labor too. And what constitutes His labor? What constitutes His work? The creation. And where do you fit? in His work? Where do you fit in His creation? Psalm 8 says, you're the crown of His creation. So you're to be enjoyed too. This is not just an individual enterprise as I see it. This is about our relationship with God made in His image. Never let go of that. Never disconnect yourself from that. But as long as that is a part of who we are, part of how we were designed, part of how we should divine ourselves and see ourselves, then this idea of rest is something that is appreciated or experienced with God and with one another. And I think that's contained because it is in rest that we appreciate six days of work and what was created. Well, I think you hear me. I think you get what I'm saying. We need to acknowledge Him and His creation, but that involves us. Well, now I want to shift just a little to chapter 2, verse 4, 5, 6, and 7. Because when we get to chapter 2, verse 4, 5, 6, and 7, it brings to mind, how does this relate to chapter 1? And we're going to tie this in to chapter 1. And particularly, verse 26, 27, 28. When we get to chapter 2, verse 4, and... uh, I've got something I want you to see on the screen. This is my NIV reading. And it's, it's, it's a good reading. So I've used it, and I've spaced things to kind of make it more plain to your eye. But what I want you to notice is that verse 5 and 6, see the, the extended hyphen at the end of verse 4 just before we get to the indented content? of 5 and 6, and then see the extended hyphen at the end of verse 6 before we get to verse 7. That isn't to say that's not important. It's very important. But, But even grammatically, it's kind of what I would describe as a a parenthetical orientation to the creation of man. This up-close focus on the creation of man in verse 7. And it ties it in to the, the second part 
of verse 4. Notice how verse 4, part 1 or A, and verse 4, part B is here separated. And I'm going to explain why. Let's look at verse 4, part 1 or A. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That word created, what you might say, well, why isn't this? It's like it rounds out. It completes the seven day. You with me? And, and even more prominent than may be visible to our eye is this is the seventh occurrence of the word bara to create, which we're introduced to in verse 1. And notice also, heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth, or heaven and earth. Just as we were told in verse 1 of chapter 1. This is what we call kind of a, in a literary sense, it's a clear completion, or rounding out. And that's why I think this is meant to be kind of a visible sign that this we're drawing, so to speak, the curtain on Act 1, if you will, we're bringing to, so to speak, completeness with the seventh day and even the seventh barah, not a verb that occurs in chapter 2 otherwise. I mean, it's placed by whom in chapter 2 here, verse 4? Not by God. All of the verses, all of the chapter references are well meant, very helpful, help us to navigate but they themselves are not, so to speak, given by God. The, the passage that we're reading was just continuous, without breaks. Okay? So, I think that brings us to it in. Now, notice verse 4, part B. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, notice how it's been reversed. Some of you already picked that up. And I think that's because we're going to take a close-up on the land, in particular, the garden. And what's important about this also is we're, in a sense, in chapter 2, we're getting a close-up of the sixth day, in particular, is the image of God, which is whom? Man. And man... And when I say man, I mean humankind, mankind, the word Adam. Adam is how it's translated in verse 20. And we don't begin to translate it Adam until Eve comes on the scene. Because then they're named. But prior to that, it's speaking about humanity, the creation of humanity. You with me? Thank you. So, then when we get to verse 5 and 6, as I said, kind of a parenthetical orientation. Why? Notice these words, and you can see them up on the screen or in your Bible. It says, no shrub of the field, no plant of the field. You see that? I want you to note that. Secondly, it says, not sent rain on the earth. God had not sent rain on the earth. You got that? That's another orientation. And then thirdly, it says, no man to work the ground. Do you see that? No man to work the ground. You with me? So, what? No 
shrub, no plant of the field. Of the field is very significant. No plant, no shrub of the field. Secondly, no rain. God had not sent rain on the earth. And third, no man to work the ground. Now, when do we hear these expressions again? We're not to that point in which Adam and Eve disobey God. And with that disobedience, they are driven from the garden. And there is a curse imposed on the earth, on the ground. Now I want you to notice something. In verse 18 of chapter 3, you don't have to turn, but you can write it down or make a mental note or turn and read it. But no shrub, no plant of the field becomes thorns and thistles and plants of the field to describe the curse upon the ground. In chapter 3, verse 18. Not sent rain is reversed in chapter 7, verse 4. When God will use this, the very next, I mean, if you were reading from verse 1 at the beginning of the Bible, from left to right, as far as you could, you wouldn't run into the word rain until you got to chapter 7, verse 4. And that's at the unleashing of the flood, and the rains come. But see, what I think we are being told here is these are not the conditions. These are the conditions you see, the rain the cursing of the ground in terms of the shrub or the thorns of the field, the plants of the field, and then no man to work the ground will be changed after man and woman are driven from the garden when they are to work the ground. You see, my point is this, that when we immediately move into this next close-up, if you will, of the sixth day. This emphasis on the image of God, which has been introduced in verse 26-7. There are some things that have not happened. But of course, as a reader, it's already happened, hasn't it? But I think that we are being told what is more familiar to you, the toil of the ground and these things, that was not the case. That was not the case. And so, in chap- if, to, to talk about it a little bit loosely, ta- chapter 2 is related to chapter 1 because, as I said, the six-day creation of man, the bearer of the image of God, is continued. A second point would be the six-day blessing. To be fruitful, of course, is realized only in chapter 2. And the land, as it relates to the blessing and the curse is in focus. In fact, heaven and earth is now earth and heaven. Okay. You with me so far? Just a little, I uh, had to get a grocery list of some things out of the way that are very, very important. Well, what do, you, what, do you th- what do you hear about the image of God from our world in this day? I, I know that you and I are oriented. We are, you know, we're, we're connected to God through Jesus Christ. We're connected to the image of God, which is ours through Genesis. Our reading, or if nothing else, just the last couple of weeks as I've talked about it. But I just want to visit for a second, and I just want to give you some snapshots. Some snapshots of current views 
of humankind, humanity, a person. And these have come again, I grant you, because they're so prevalent from the starting point that we're uncreated and in a sense, uh, we're the product of evolutionary mechanisms starting with one huge, unexplainable accident. Well, let me just give you a couple of examples of some snapshots. For example, and you've probably heard this, I mean, we're, we're part of the animal kingdom, so we're basically, we're, we're developed animals, you know, but we're really animals and members of the animal kingdom. We're studied as animals, A lot of medical advances uh, in medicine and all have been through experimentation on other animals. Uh, Why would you do that if we're altogether different? And the Bible doesn't teach that we aren't created or there. I mean, all the living animals are on the same six days, so there are connections. But to limit us to animals is a little different thing. But but we're studied as animals. We're compared to them. We're understood. Because of them, uh, I'm sure Pavlov's dog rings a bell for some of you. I think, and I know from my own experience, and I mean this, we even act like animals. Especially cats. Just my opinion. Other views of man have been, were sexual beings. Uh, You take, for example, uh, Sigmund Freud, who really located the driving mechanism of our human makeup, our image, as sex. He called it libido. And basically, we're wild, sex-driven people. And what has, in effect, tempered this has been civilization and morality, especially misguided religion. I mean, that's according to Freud. He said that's the key to understanding who you are. Of course, the academic world today says it's not the key. But Hugh Hefner in the Playboy philosophy says it is the key. And Madison Avenue advertising says it is the key. In fact, you can't sell anything without sex because we're all about sex. And of course, that gets us back to Freud who just said, we really are, it's just, we just don't feel right about it because of what other people think about us and so forth and so on. But you know, it's interesting, and this is a recent uh, groundbreaking piece of study, and it has been brought about by the American Psychological Association. This research shows the proliferation of sexualized images of girls and young women in advertising, merchandising, and media. And that it's harmful to a girl's self-image and healthy development. That's what the American Psychological Association says and validates. You think? (laughs) 
The APA took aim at everything from sexually salacious ads to the tarted up brat stalls popular with young girls. Every forum of media was fair game. Video games, song lyrics, magazines, and the round-the-clock bombardment of sexual images found on television and the internet. And sexualization is defined by the task force, this study, as occurring when a person's value comes only from his or her sexual appeal or behavior to the exclusion of other characteristics. And when a person is sexually objectified, made into a thing for another's sexual use. Isn't that interesting? Some see us as an animal. Some see us as a sexual being. Some as an economic being. Uh, Karl Marx. Dialectical, dialectical materialism. Communism. Says we're... We're economic. In fact, uh, it may have been, I don't know if it was uh, Marx who said, it's the economy, stupid. But the presumption is, is that if, if all can be supplied with food, adequate shelter and clothing, not only for us, but our offspring, then all class aggression and all war will cease. For some reason, the motto from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs just isn't catching on. There's another view that we're pawns of the universe. Pawns of the universe. For example, Nietzsche, uh, Russell, Sartre, Camus. I mention this because in our schools, I read from these authors. And I'm not saying that it was you know, bad, but they have a view of the world that says, this is all so meaningless. I mean, maybe they're being honest. If you, got, if you take God out of the equation... Let's face the music. It's really absurd and meaningless. And they're saying it. But I just have two words for Nietzsche, Russell, Sartre, Camus, the meaningless, the cynical, the nihilistic view of an absurd universe and our image as pawns. Who cares? Thank you. Somebody in here got that. I, I really worked hard on that. Uh, I thought that was pretty funny myself. I laugh at my own jokes. There's another view. There's a view of us as a free being. I love these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. Boy, that just sound, that rings with Genesis. They are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. They're so beautiful, but you know, they've changed. Creator doesn't mean what it used to mean. In fact, I think that we hear Creator and we think Invictus. 
You know, that's the title given to the poem written by William Ernest Henley. The last stanza which reads, It matters not how straight the gate. I hear Jesus in those words. Take that narrow, that straight gate. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. A lot of times we just use the word God and Creator, but we have emptied it and filled it really with an atheistic worldview in which we are the captains of our fate. How are we not mere machines? Why shouldn't an employer rent you? I mean, let's face it. Rent you for your energy, your, your competence, your skill. Pay you this money. You're rented to accomplish, to perform, to produce. I even think the growing automation reduces the workforce, at least philosophically, to nothing more than someone who contributes in terms of performance and production. And I think that is, in a way, why sometimes we move to automation. Because we're not as efficient. We have sick days. We need instruction. We have breakdowns, as it were. But listen, why do I bring up something like that? I'm trying to drive home a point here. When we view man in one of these ways, or we let it creep into our view of the creation of man in His image, these things can actually creep into the church. For example, if you hire a pastor, and there, but there's no hidden message here. Okay, let me just get this out on the table. This is, I've been waiting for 11 years to say this. I'm going to hide it under Genesis. Or, when you hire a pastor to perform and produce tasks, should we be surprised when that same pastor turns around and views the addition of members as giving units to fuel or fund and finance ministry and programs. I even knew of a pastor who called visiting shut-ins and the elderly junk calls. Oh, he was kind of whimsical about it. But the fact of the matter is, where does that come from? I'll tell you where it came from with him. It came from a view of certain people not mattering as much because they don't produce and they don't perform in a way that furthers the vision, his vision of the church. A vision which was caught from the pastoral search committee when they only wanted a pastor who could fulfill certain tasks. 
And somewhere in all of that, the gospel is lost. Because the image of God has been severed from the Creator. I'm sorry, I get a little emotional about this. But I'll tell you, if that becomes the ministry, I I don't want to be involved in that. Passion doesn't come from something so very human and mundane and found (laughs) found out there as much as in here. That's not for me. And I know it's not for you. Amen? So what does God have to say about His image? I want us to look at that sixth day, verses 26, 27, and 28 again. And I think I'm going to... I want to take you into some detail, so bear with me here. Because this is the core... There's a lot in the Bible. And when a theologian wants to understand what God has to say about this or that, we want to take into consideration the whole counsel of God. But this is the opening, so to speak. This is the beginning. This is the way the Jews, they would read this very carefully. They would take this foundationally. And so when we get to verse 26, And 27, let's look at it again. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, wait a second. Let us? Doesn't that that kind of pique your interest? Let us? I know we don't put as much into English these days. Or writing. Uh, Even on Sunday morning, this morning, I caught a bit about the fact that handwriting is a thing of the past almost. But let us, that's the first person plural. Why in a monotheistic, monotheistic, one God creation account do you have let us? Well, there are a number of reasonable suggestions. Let me just uh, give you a couple of them. For example, the plural refers to the Trinity. When you take into consideration what we call Old or First Testament and New Testament or, or Second Testament, the Bible, we have the Father, we have the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. But how are we to understand our or us before Jesus has even come? Or the New Testament has been written. And so the Jews have never understood this in terms of what we call the Trinity. At least not traditionally. But I'll have a word more to say about that. Another solution or... uh, Explanation is that the plural refers to God and His heavenly court of angels, which is something that occurs, for example, in the prophets or in other places. But not specifically here. Another would be the plural refers to God's majesty, limiting resemblance to humans, of humans to God. And a fourth would be the plural expresses God's deliberation, which in a sense elevates the importance of 
humankind over the creation of other living creatures. Well, these are reasonable explanations, but these last two, God's majesty and God's liberation, do not find specific validation in the immediate context. So I want us to take us back to that thought of the Trinity. I don't think that we should ever think it odd that the Jews didn't read that in there if they don't accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Incarnation. But what can we learn here that would allow for our understanding of the Trinity? Let me just point to verse 27 for a moment. If we look at verse 27, you notice that two times we're told that man is created in God's image and a third that man was created male and female. Now that same pattern is followed in Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. When God created man, male and female, He created them. In other words, the singular word man, now again, this is Adam, which stands for humanity, or humankind, or people, but man is singular, and yet it expresses very clearly in both of these passages a plurality, male and female. That's very significant. Likewise, the one God created, notice in verse 27, He, He, He. Do you see that? So, even if we think of the heavenly court, including His angels, they had nothing to do with the creation. And so that really narrows things down. It's He, He, He. The singular That is, the one God created man through an expression of His plurality. Let us make man in our image. And we do see in this chapter a plurality of personality. In chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2, we have God created and the Spirit of God hovering over. So there is, even in this immediate context, a plurality which is expressed And I think it's a clue to God's plurality as an anticipation of the human plurality of the man and woman. The human relationship being between a man and a woman, a witness to God's own relationship within the Godhead. And I want to take this a little further as we continue to ponder 26 and 27. When you get to verse 26, this is just to put you as a part of humanity created in the image of God into focus. In verse 26, I think if you're reading in the New International Version, it says, then God said. Is that correct? Then God said. Or some of your translations will say, and God said. Well, in verse 3, and in verse 6, in verse 9, in verse 11, in verse 14, in verse 20, in verse 24, and in verse 26, exact same words. I think the NIV says it then, but every other use is, and God said, and God said. But then, when you get to verse 26, then God said. But it's exact same words. 
And in all those other places, see, that's very normal. In all those other places, and God said, and then the third person, let there be light. But when he gets to verse 26, the sixth day, and God said, let us. That's really, I mean, that's just boom. Very, very, what a shift. From the third person to now the first person, let us. The first person plural, the first person is very, very significant here and really indicates a shift in emphasis. Much more personal. Much more personal. By the way, just to put that into focus, in verse 25, in the creation, uh, each creature is described as made, note these words, according to its kind. You think about that. Made according to its kind. So you get to the, the, the making, the creating of a human being, and you would expect humanity to be created according to its kind. But we're not. We're created according to the Creator in our image. What a shift. What a difference. It's right there. Right there. Right in front of your noses. Powerful. This is what the Bible says. There are tremendous implications here. In verse 27, it says that Adam, humanity, mankind, is male and female. Now, I really want you to think with me for a minute. In the creation of other forms of life, gender is not mentioned. Up until this point, gender has never been mentioned. But now it is. It's associated with the very image of God. In fact, in the Hebrew, male and female come before the verb, which is a point of emphasis. In fact, the Bible does not speak here first of the creation of man in general and then afterwards of man and woman. But from the very beginning, from the very outset, the Bible speaks of man only in the framework of the polarity between male and female. Now that's striking. And I don't think that it is to be ignored or overlooked. In fact, I think it suggests that the fuller view of God's image and His outstanding qualities is seen in holding male and female together. The singular is defined by male and female. And of course, I could, I could include, when you look at the blessing, well, I would also say that there is no qualitative difference between the image of God as male, female. Which means that woman, you are the image of God. Man, you are the image of God. You're, man, you're not more of an image of God than you, lady, woman. No, you are 
qualitatively equal, and, but when you put them together, we even have a more beautiful, more profound view of God's image. Not just in marriage, but when you hold together in a, like a polarity. I like that word because they're not broken. They're not to be separated. One is not to be given precedence over the other. Held together, we have a better view of the image of God. I would say that male and female sets the stage for fertility, populating the earth by relationship multiplied, And it is interesting that the image of God is mentioned in respect to the birth of Seth, the child of Aaron, that the image of God does not, so to speak, end with the death of Adam. The image of God survives, you might say, banishment from the garden. We're not to see that the image of God is anything less, I think here, than pointing us to harmonious relationships. Look at these words. It's really getting hot in here, by the way. Is it just me? If it's just me, it's okay. Are you getting warm? That's why I left my jacket down there. Just look at the... the, How familiar are these words? The two became one flesh. You heard those words before? Think with me for just a moment. Does the two became one flesh presume a oneness that is not ours solely through the flesh, but apart from the flesh, apart from the physical, there already is a oneness? A oneness that can be achieved that is not exclusive to marriage, but is a part of our identity? You see what I'm saying? Why does it emphasize the two became one flesh? I suggest that there is a oneness that can be had apart from just the physical. But that within the boundaries of marriage, that oneness is complete. That oneness which is human and a part of our identity in the image of God. That kind of oneness which is a part of what we're all about as a human being. That kind of oneness is taken to another step within marriage. So that even the physical, even the flesh as it were, becomes a part of this oneness. A oneness within our grasp because of who we are. Because we are like our God. Well, I encourage you to read Genesis 2 in the days ahead with an eye to to seeing more about our image and the image of God. We relate to God in chapter 2. Only people converse with God in chapter 2. We're responsible for our actions. And we're given godly standards by which to live. Godly standards, not animal standards. In Genesis chapter 5, 3, we, as I mentioned, the image of God passes to children beyond the garden. And in chapter 9, verse 5 and 6, God's image, and it's expressly stated in these verses, that's why I mentioned chapter 5, 3, and now chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, God's image prohibits the violation of another because of how we see one another. 
I would even say that the image of God is seen in the dominion that we're given over all His creation. Psalm 8 would be a reference. That we are God's custodians. We're His representatives. But I would also say that this image is also given and expressed in the fact that we, as a pattern after God, are called to a seventh day rest. There are special prerogatives of dominion and rest point to our relationship with God, with one another, and His work. Well, how do we personalize this? Let me just wrap this up. And I want to draw upon... Um, Helmut Thielicke is a German pastor. He died just a few years ago. He's a, his, some of his writings have really had an impression upon me. I'd just like to share with you one thing, if you'll permit me. He says, if there's one rule that is given to us by the command to love our neighbor... It is that we must always judge a person by his optimum and not by his failures. He illustrates this with a woman in her marriage. And this is really touching. It's very moving. He, he says, here's a woman who pours out the story of her broken marriage in tears. For her husband... She simply does not exist, except as a lightning rod for his temper and uncontrolled emotions. Everything she says indicates quite clearly that her husband is a brutal man. And one can understand why her love is almost extinguished under the constant pressure of his mental cruelty. Now, what should one say to her, he asks. Uh, obviously, some might say divorce is best, and that thought is bound to occur. But he says, well, should I t ask her if we take this course of action, aren't we kind of taking his final foothold away from him and putting him into a deeper hole? Is there something else that I could say to her to change her view of her husband and what she's going through. He says, perhaps this is what I should say to her. You loved your husband when you first knew him. Isn't that true? Yes, she replies. But then he was different. True. Naturally, he was different. But then he... But then you were different, and your relationship was different, and she, he says, otherwise you would never have married him. Yes, she interrupts, you can depend on that. But you did love him once, I continue. And now I ask you who your husband really is. Is his real self what you loved then, or is his real self the horrible being who makes you suffer now? And he leaves off the illustration to point out that in Jesus Christ, we learn that love that was once there, but has long since died, we learn that Jesus had laid upon this real, the intrinsic nature of this husband. The way he appeared to his wife back there was the way God intended him to be. And his present state was a deviation 
and a fall from the former state. And he just concludes, he says, when we stop to consider where Jesus gained the power to love harlots, bullies, and ruffians, we find only one answer, and that is that he was able to do this only because he saw through the filth and the crust of degeneration, because his eye caught the divine original, which is hidden in every person. And you could say, our Creator has not lost sight of His creation. Jesus renews everything in us. He revives our conscience. Changes the way we look at the world. Changes the way we see others. Because you see, Jesus Christ bears the ideal image of God. When we go back to Genesis, we see in the first act of God's Word, His creation, and the place that we are to have in it. And we get a beautiful picture of who we are in God's eyes. Who we are to be. But then in chapter 2, with some of the very qualities that are a part of our image, we disobey God. Thrust from the garden. And we end up with all these various images of man today. Some of which I illustrated earlier. We look back. And that's valuable. But we also have to look to He who has come. Jesus Christ. Who revives the ideal image of who we are. He who was sinless. He who understands how God intended us. And He who can recreate what we are to be through what He did for us on the cross. But when we look at Jesus, He actually sees us because He is our Creator. Will you stand with me? My wife encourages me to uh, not be too, too technical. And uh, I'm working on it. I'm, just bear with me. I know these last sermons have gone a little bit extra long because I, I just want to ground us in some of these things. This really does have bearing on the way we see each other in our world, where God's taking us and what we matter to Him. And I pray that you'll be mindful of that. Let me pray for us and I'll let you go. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. We see revived in Him all that You meant us to be. And it is indeed by Him that we are, as it were, able to recover and know, not just because of Genesis, but know because of Jesus Christ in our hearts, because of Your presence in us, a renewal a new person, and a new way of seeing ourselves and others, and a fulfillment of loving You and loving our neighbor. We praise and thank You for Him. May this thought be like a seed that grows within our hearts, even this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you, you're dismissed.
This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.